Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast, Episode 2, the one about data versus stories, video editing apps, and Bond 25. Welcome everyone to another episode in the new podcast series, Two Geeks and a Marketing Podcast. As always, we're here to share with you the latest news, marketing tech, content and wisdom from the world of marketing. My co-host is a man on a mission to demystify digital marketing. He's the host of the Content Marketing Studio podcast and many other video series. Please welcome... Pascal Fintoni. Well, thank you so much. And what, what a pleasure it is to spend more time with a man on a mission too, to keep marketing simple. You're the voice of the Marketing and Finance podcast. You're also the host of the Rod's Vlog video series. I give you Mr. Roger Edwards. Oh, thank you, Pascal. And I think what we should do is go straight into the news. What do you think? Let's do that. So here's the news. Marketing budgets as a percentage of company revenues and spend have risen to a record high during the coronavirus pandemic as brands turn to marketing to retain customers and build brand value. Well, Roger, Ben & Jerry, the famous ice cream company, has pulled all US advertising from the Facebook platform, an example followed by many. The ad industry badly misunderstands aspirations of normal people, a study finds. Industry believes fame and money are widespread desires. In fact, but very few people are actually bothered about them. It's all about customer experience, Roger. And on the 4th of July, cinemas in the UK are going to reopen. Let's see what the audience is going to make of it. This is an interesting statistic. E-commerce accounted for 33.4% of all great Britain retail sales in May. Footfall in England jumped 38.8% as non-essential shops reopened. Just goes to show that people still love to shop in person. Mm, This one surprised me, Roger. Photo sharing app Instagram is now set to overtake Twitter as a news source. I really like this one, Pascal. Digital ad marketing spend is set to eclipse old media for the first time. Digital advertising on platforms such as Google, Facebook and Alibaba is set this year to overtake spending on traditional media, a historic shift in market share that's been accelerated by the coronavirus pandemic. Mm, There was a recent research done by Susie Donaldson, who is the marketing director at camera giant Canon. She's warning marketers to not get lost in analysing spreadsheets, saying that when it comes to best marketing, the one with heart and driven by story are the best. Some interesting stuff there, Pascal. What do you think we should focus on today? Do you you know what caught my attention? It's the digital ad spend one. I mean, we've, we've heard quite a lot of talk over the years that, yes, okay, we've got all these new digital platforms and social media, but, you know, traditional TV advertising, even billboard poster advertising is still very popular. But here we go, you know, the electronic, the digital seems to be in pole position finally. Yes, and what is interesting is, you know, when you and I uh, do our work as consultant trainers and speakers, we would always moderate our passion for digital by saying, don't forget traditional. It's still going very well. Data doesn't lie. You should mix it up. You know, you should have balance of digital and traditional, although it should all be called marketing. And certainly for me, uh, I was aware that people still favoured uh, 
in-store experience as opposed to digital and that by mm. and large tv radio and print media advertising was still winning this pandemic has changed all of that and th- i suppose the question f- that, that i have is will it stay like this or is it just a spike that is going to then go down again and everything is going to go back to almost what it was, which were traditional uh, advertising and in-store kind of purchases are still going to remain the lion's share of the action. It's a difficult one to call, isn't it? I mean, I've always thought that, to be perfectly honest, you know, even even the word, the words digital marketing has become almost like a a misnomer marketing is marketing isn't it and and where where does the line cross now i mean you know traditional advertising you would expect to see a billboard outside a football stadium or something like that well nowadays they're digital billboards aren't they so that's digital marketing or is it still traditional even though it's digital i think sometimes you know it just becomes <laughs> all blurred together so maybe we just say that marketing spend is up across the board. It is, yes. But I think what, what is interesting is I, I'm assuming the marketers and advertisers took the view that people were spending longer online. I think the data we're going to get from Ofcom when it's released will show because we were all in lockdown situation that I think the average per family or asshole was um, nine hours a day. I think this have gone obviously um, bigger. So let's go where customers are online and advertise accordingly. So it would make sense to me, bear in mind my earlier query question to you, if then the population goes back to visiting stores again and goes back to traveling, then the marketing spend will follow. I think it depends. I'm thinking whether the data would also be suggesting to others, actually pound for pound, digital is giving us better return on investment. Yep, I suppose time will tell. In the meantime, people are still having to queue up two metres apart to get into these stores. So I think it's going to take a little bit of time before things get back to whatever the new normal is. Absolutely. And bear in mind, you know, my, my the latest news about don't spend too much time analysing. Spend some time analysing for sure. But I think as people, we are strange creatures and we will behave in ways that even the data can't quite reveal. And I think, I remember my days in corporate, you know, we always met time with um, the staff that were customer facing and just said, tell me about your day, tell me about the conversation you've had. Because in there, there would be some, let's call it intelligence, <laughs> that frankly, <laughs> we can't get from the analytics. Absolutely. Pascal, I think we should move on to our content spotlight section. In the content spotlight section, we look at an article or a podcast or a video that's caught our attention, again, from the world of marketing. So, Pascal, what have you got for me this week? Well, Roger, you know that I'm very fond of long-form articles, the written form, which is a challenge for me, as you know, I much favour video and other form of visual marketing. And I came across an article on the Content Marketing Institute website. You'll know the Content mm-hmm. Marketing Institute, really a wonderful voice and force behind doing content marketing right. And the, the author of this article is a lady called Jodie Harris. The title, Even B2B Audiences Want Emotion in Their Content. I really recommend that you and our viewers and listeners take some time to read the article. It's in two parts, really. One is uh, on reflection 
on the fact that by and large, historically, B2B organizations have found it very difficult to express empathy and to connect with the audience in a very emotional way. Because somehow, uh, I, would, I would argue, historically, it's been the case that B2C can do emotions and B2B cannot. It's, I think there's been some strange kind of established wisdom that uh, is lost uh, with time. And so she, she kind of argues the point that we need to be very careful that um, we don't get to the position where actually by error or just by misjudging the situation, B2B organizations continue to operate and communicate in a very professional and, and kind of very distant way just to establish their credentials at a time when actually all audiences, even B2B, need uh, an organization that seems to understand them and care for them. And then the second half is she's recounting some of the um, speakers that she met at the Domain Generation Summit, which I believe is organized in collaboration with the Content Marketing Institute. And there was two speakers she mentioned, one called Ardath Albi and the one called Gurdip Dillon. And in summary, there was uh, one quote that I want to mention to you, which is uh, the first one from Ardath Albi is uh, as follows. What they really want, as in the audience, what they really want now is insights that are going to help them make decisions at a time of great uncertainty. And it was just this idea of be very careful not to just have your marketing machines in motion that keeps pushing sales messages or conversion kind of led messages at a time where actually people have other emotions coming into it, such as fear, fear of losing a job, fear of not essentially uh, the impact of the virus and so on. So at a time of great uncertainty, what the audience will need is support to make better decisions, which are sometimes not relating to your core product. Secondly, Gerdip Dillon had this wonderful concept of people with, I'm going to say, emotional buckets. And what he's saying is, you know, you've got your buyer with their own buckets of emotions and you've got the seller. And at this moment in time, it is fair to suggest to you that the buyer um, will have other emotions or could be drained by the current pandemic. And what Gerdip is warning people to say, be very careful that you don't end up, you know, wanting to fill your buckets with your needs as a seller at a time where your buyer's buckets is drained because of all the emotions um, that are coming into play. So his argument, and I'm going to read that to you, is the only way to fill our buckets, those who want to sell, is by filling theirs too, by delivering micro moments of value. Micro moments of value. Relevant content, ideas, and answers to their most important burning questions at this moment in time. And I just thought that the article was very timely. Again, it was in, in depth and in detail, which I really appreciate people doing that. But it's back to this idea of almost giving permission for B2B organization to let down their guard a bit and actually say, we're like you, by the way, we're worried about what's happening. We are confused. We, we're not sure. But we are lucky to have access to content, to connections that we're going to share with you to help me make decisions. And we're going to do this in micro moments because we understand also that it's very difficult to take information on board. So that's my choice of the week. Even B2B audiences want emotion in their content. Do you know, I'm sitting here thinking about this now as you've been talking me through this. And it's actually quite staggering, isn't it, really, this difference in attitude between B2B and B2C. And, and, and if you actually think about it, the majority, if not all of the people who are involved in B2B marketing will at some point be consumers themselves of B2C. 
and they'll know what they react to when a brand is communicating with them as a customer. So why have we almost built this this moat or this wall between the two types of marketing when in reality the same people are, are, are experiencing both. Is it is it possible that this whole and you you mentioned the word earlier this professional and I've just done air quotes there because <laughs> you know we, we you, you'll see it on LinkedIn sometimes Pascal you know somebody will, will will post a picture of a cat or something on LinkedIn and and some bright spark will pop along and say oh for goodness sake why have you posted a picture of a cat on LinkedIn this is a professional platform and. Well, if you want to post a picture of a cat on LinkedIn, then fine. It Perhaps it shows that you've got an emotional side, that you are actually a human being, and, and perhaps people want. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not going to suggest suddenly that we have a rush of people post, posting pictures of cats on LinkedIn now, of course, but what I'm trying to say is maybe we've just got this perception that professional – gets in the way and, and almost stifles and, 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 and dampens down the humanity of B2B marketing. Maybe we should just redefine what professional actually means. I mean, what does it mean? And I think the fact that people have had to work from home a lot has allowed them to realize that it can be done. I mean, those who have done webinars, for example, in professional studios doing it from their back bedroom, those who would write and operate and have complex meetings doing it via video meetings in people's kind of kitchens and so on. For me, it feels almost, uh, it reminds me of a situation I was in where over my careers as a marketer, I moved from B2C to B2B from large to small. I remember working for a corporate organization b2b and when i presented an initial campaign the reaction i got was that's far b2c for us and and the reason for that is there was um i think it was tapping into emotions you were tapping into designs and so on and i think for me the lesson i took away is again by and large there will be some exception roger the b2b community is far too concerned of the opinions of their peers mm. Whereas in B2C, they're too busy getting on with it. I mean, they, they will be keeping an eye out on the competition and so on, but not concerned about the opinions of others to, to the same degree I see my customers be when they operate in that business-to-business environment. And let's face it, it's always got to be about the customer, hasn't it? Whether it's a, a B2B customer or a B2C customer, you should be communicating with your customer. You shouldn't be communicating to impress your competitors, or to impress the people who, as you say, are your peers. So, yeah, let, let's keep the message focused on the customer. Well, I'm glad you liked my selection for this week. So what have you got for us? Well, this I was in two minds as to whether to bring this one to the table because it's absolutely basic, Bobby basic stuff. But then, you know me, Pascal, I like to keep things simple. Now, this particular article, written by Isabel Lane, and, and it was published on a website called BizBash. Love that name, BizBash. <laughs> BizBash. Um, this is pointing out something which is fairly obvious, that the world has recently changed. The COVID-19 pandemic has created all sorts of havoc across the, the business world. Uh, we, we, we've all heard the word pivot. Quite a lot of companies have had to re-imagine themselves in an online environment. I mean, you and I have been affected by this. Quite a lot of our face-to-face -face workshop types of um, 
engagements. We've had to transform them into an online environment. So everybody's having to change. And this particular article is focusing very closely in on events, conferences, workshops, that sort of thing, you know, the sort of thing that we that you and I do. And and it and it's coming up with and it's demonstrating seven tips for marketing your event in the COVID-19 era. Now, I have to say, Pascal, and I sometimes shy away from articles with titles like this, because I think you mentioned it in last week's episode that uh, these sort of articles and, and, and uh, content pieces almost sometimes suggest you know, it's, just, it's just commodity type content. And when I initially read this, I thought, well, actually, Pascal might be right. For example, the, the seven things that you've got to consider. Number one, consider the benefits of the virtual event, but know your target audience. Well, that's pretty obvious, isn't it? Number two, offer a tangible takeaway. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, that's pretty obvious as well. Number three, keep it short, sweet, and transparent. Okay. Um, Maybe, yeah, on an online environment, that's fine. Maybe if it's a face-to-face event, you could go into a little bit more detail. Number four, pay attention to the data. Number five, don't forget the influence of influencers. Uh, That one could actually be an entire separate debate on another podcast. Number six, get even more creative with campaigns. And seven, be flexible. And I'm sitting here thinking, that's all just obvious stuff, isn't it? That's all just obvious stuff. And you should be doing this for your event, whether it's in the middle of a COVID-19 pandemic or whether in we're in normal trading circumstances. In fact, this this is, as I say, pretty basic stuff. But it just it just did make me wonder. One of the things that struck me throughout this entire pandemic is that people have been saying, as a result of COVID-19, you need to pivot, or you need to reimagine your business online, or you need to go off and learn a new skill. But actually, Pascal, I think this article, as simple as it might be, and as obvious as it might be, just highlight the fact that the marketing rules, i.e. identifying a customer, coming up with an offer, a takeaway in this case, and keeping it simple, and engaging with the customer. Those rules stay the same, whether we're in the middle of a global pandemic, whether we're in the middle of a global stock market crash, or whether we're living in normal circumstances. The rules of marketing change. It's just your interpretation of those rules specific to your customer that needs to change. And I think that that's a lesson we need to learn. Don't suddenly Go off and do something different because the world's changed. Go through the process you would always go through. Research, offer, and then communication. And I think what I, as I'm listening to you, Roger, what I'm taking away is a reminder that, in fact, with respect to event managers and event marketers, it is a complex affair to do so. Not complicated, but it's complex. What I mean by that, as you pointed out, there are many elements that all support and complement each other. And the warning from Isabel Lane is therefore that each element has to be accomplished to a higher standard today than perhaps in the past where you could have been forgiven to be, let's say, be more wasteful with your marketing efforts. So a an okay in our research exercise, an okay uh, campaign on LinkedIn and an okay delivery of the event on the day now will not uh, do cut it because you have to go to that superior level. 
I'm with you with regard to pivoting. I've heard the, the uh, word used so much now that I'm thinking people would be digging a hole for themselves if they keep pivoting <laughs> all, all the time. And, and I think sometimes the intention was, was very much rethink your product design and service design with the element of digital. Bear in mind the news that we explored uh, earlier for me, digital is meant to be the extension or that experience that I could have with you face to face. When it comes to event, um, interestingly, I've got a um, content creator to give a shout out to uh, a moment later with regard to events, physical events. Well, I think when it comes to event, this will be, there's still a desire for people to be with each other. At the moment, it's limited because, you know, we have to be careful and protect each other. But I think that it gives event managers maybe space, quality space and time to refine their marketing campaigns and just do a better job overall by targeting a better audience, provide a better experience, and in general to have build a better brand for that particular universe or ecosystem that they're building for themselves. Yeah, absolutely. I love that analogy you just said there that pivoting could almost be like digging a hole for yourself. Well, that's almost diviting, isn't it? <laughs> Uh, actually, let's move on. I think it's time to talk about some marketing tech. In this section of the show, we look at marketing tech. It's all those apps and platforms that have caught our attention over the last week. So, Pascal, you tell me, what have you got for us this week? I've gone, Roger, for two apps that I simply could not do without. I've been using them for several years now. And imagine a situation where if they were to shut down or be taken over and stop working or, or whichever, I would really, really be lost as a marketer. The very mm -hmm. first one is called Flipboard. It's a curation tool that I've been using now for, goodness, nearly seven years, would you believe? And there are many other options out there, but what I liked about it was that it's very visual. With Flipboard, what you can do is create online magazines that you can then mm. share on with your, with your audience. It's called Flipboard because it's got essentially the shape of those flip not pads that you can see sometime in your favorite um, cop series, series or journalist, you know, that kind of uh, gumshoe guy that comes comes around with a pen and writes down notes. And what you do with the, with the Flipboard, once you share the online magazine uh, around the theme or around a series of content and so on, people can flip by pressing the screen and with their finger go vertically, you know, up and the page turn by flipping over like that little notebook. You can have as many magazines as you want, the idea being that you specialize on subjects. So I've got one on SEO, on social media, on content marketing, on film, you name it. You can make them public, you can make them private. And it's just a wonderful way to curate swiftly and more importantly, to then give that access to your audience. I think that's in the spirit of Flipboard. I, I would argue that they see themselves as a bit of a social network and they release new features all the time. And because it's been part and parcel of my daily, weekly routine, Roger, if Flipboard was to disappear, I would be lost. And more importantly, this value add that I've invented for my customers where they can go on my website and analyze and study the the magazines i would lose that so um, i'm almost saying flipboard please continue what you're doing but don't go anywhere the second app that frankly i could not do without is quick by gopro spelled q u i k as you know roger if you make an app you have to misspell the name to make it sound obviously <laughs> very attractive and appealing and quick by gopro is a wonderful video editing app works on your mobile phones both ios and android it is essentially driven by this AI engine that will edit 
your videos they could be still photography or video clips to the tempo of free music that you can also select within the, the quick app so you've maybe taken some um, stills at a recent trade show perhaps you've done some video clips of an event that you've delivered and so on and you want to put together a bit of a promo reel a bit of a um, you know we should be in there type of video you select the video clips that very easily you select the music you select this template they have up to 11 to 12 templates to choose from and then within seconds you have a video that is edited you can add text you can change the order of the video clips you can do a number of things you can then download and publish directly on social media and it is completely free I don't know why, I don't know how, because with respect to GoPro, it's such a good app, I think people will pay a few pounds a month just for access to that. So if you like um, video editing done swiftly, but also really well, thanks to the AI engine, I recommend Quick by GoPro. So there you have it, Roger. Flipboard for content curation and sharing, and Quick by GoPro for video editing and sharing. And presumably, the video, the editing in the Quick app doesn't have to have been filmed on a GoPro. Presumably, it could be filmed on anything. Anything. Absolutely anything. You could even download your video clips from your Google account, from uh, obviously your, your kind of camera roll on, on your mobile phone. They have a desktop ver version, which I've never used because I'm primarily prim like everybody else on my mobile phone all the time. But yet, you're right. You can be video footage from any sources whatsoever. That's really interesting because as I segue now into my pieces of tech, we'll, we'll, we'll discover very quickly that one of them is probably interchangeable with what you've just described. Now, I love video editing as well. I love taking photographs and editing photographs. So my apps this week are similarly given over towards video and photo editing. And on my desktop at home, of course, I, I've got Adobe Creative Cloud, so that includes Photoshop, Premiere Pro, After Effects, all of that sort of thing. But obviously, when you're out and about, even though Adobe is starting to release sort of cut-down versions of their big uh, industrial strength programs, it's quite nice just to have an app which you can just quickly nip into and 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 do a bit of editing without too much complexity. And these two apps, InShot, which is the video um, uh, editing app, and Snapseed, which is a photo-based app, are phenomenally simple and absolutely have a massive wealth of features. Now, from what you've just described, Quick to me, uh, I'm thinking actually InShot and Quick probably sound like they do exactly the same thing. So I'm not going to go too much into detail with InShot. It's a very slick on your phone, video editor, all sorts of filters, templates, all the things you just described with Quick. So I'm actually going to go back to after this and download Quick and, and do a bit of a comparison between the two. I'll, I'll linger for a little bit longer on Snapseed, though. And again, great name for an app, that, isn't it? Snapseed. <laughs> it is remarkable the number of features that this app contains. It, you can you, you it's even got that sort of photoshop level of detail where you can thin somebody's face or, or widen somebody's face or remove blemishes or remove scars or whatever it might be it can go into that sort of detail it can do all the normal things like adjust the um, shadows and the and the brightness and the highlights and the saturation and all of that sort of thing and again you can overlay text on it but what i love about snapseed is just how intuitive and how simple the interface is literally everything can be done with the one finger moving around on the screen and even even if you take a pretty 
flat photograph. You know, the lighting conditions aren't particularly great. Two or three minutes messing around with the settings on Snapseed, and you can turn it into a masterpiece. So InShot and Snapseed, absolutely worth checking out if you're into video editing and photo editing on your mobile devices. Well, I think we better talk about this week in history, Pascal. So, this week in history, where are we going to start this week, Pascal? Oh, we're going to go back in time. I'm going to take you to 1868, where we had the very first practical typewriter being patented. Most importantly, this is the typewriter that had the QWERTY keyboard. Fantastic. And do you know, in 1912, same year that the Titanic sank, computer pioneer Alan Turing came up with his famous encrypted letters and he's the guy who's responsible for all those random pictures and letters that we have to enter when we're logging on to websites i have to say i really really appreciated the coverage about alan turing across all media including the bbc but let me take you to 1916 mary pickford you remember she was the very first female film star to get a million dollar contract <sighs> wow and i'm going to add something to that I came across a reminder that on the 26th of June 1963, J.F. Kennedy gave his famous speech in Berlin. Fast forward to 1989, the Berlin Wall comes down, and in 1980, the removal of the wall started with the Ashley with Checkpoint Charlie was the first thing to be taken out. Wow. Do you know what? I, this, this is fascinating, this one. In 1997, the U.S. Air Force released... And get this, a 231-page report all about dismissing long-standing claims of an alien spacecraft crash at Roswell almost 50 years earlier. Wow. I mean, come on, come on. And in 2010, Apple launched the iPhone 4. Can you remember the iPhone 4? I think the the uh, the advertising strap line for the iPhone 4 was this changes everything again. <laughs> and then within weeks they were embroiled in that antenna gate uh, fiasco where people were were reporting that the uh, the sort of metal lining of the iPhone actually wasn't working and was causing lots of interference on the phone. I remember that vividly. Yes. Um I have to tell you, Roger, I mean, this was an interesting week in history. We could, we could go on forever, including, for example, the incorporation of Microsoft as a company in 1985, if memory serves. But I, I want to ask you the question, if somebody wants to dismiss, you know, allegations and, and rumors, does it, re does it really take 231 pages to do so? Or am I essentially led to be even more suspicious, saying, well, you could have said, no, it's not true in one page or two, but 231 pages seems um, excessive. It certainly does, doesn't it? Maybe they were, maybe that was the whole point. Maybe they thought that if they came up with a, a, a report that was so utterly and amazingly long that nobody could be bothered to, re to read it. <laughs> but, li but like you, you know, I'd be thinking, okay, how can it take you 231 pages basically to say that this is rubbish? Or could we just read the executive summary? Or maybe we could have just re read the press release because let's face it, an executive summary and press release should have been able to condense all of those 231 pages into two words or one word beginning with B and ending in S. 
probably. Mm. I wonder, I mean, to be honest with you, if this is um, it's been published publicly, maybe worth doing a bit of research. Maybe they took you know, every single account, witness account, one by one, and using other form of, of records and, and scientific you know, evidence, they were trying to dismiss them one by one. But it feels like it's a lot of work and effort. Did you ever see um, when Barack Obama was interviewed on one of the chat shows in America? I can't remember the, the, the show host, one of many. And he was asked the question, you know, whether or not he'd gone to Roswell and whether or not he'd seen anything. And Barack Obama just looked at the guy and said, you see, that's why I'm the president and you're not. <laughs> just saying, you know, I wouldn't do that. Because the guy was saying, I think I'm, I'm going to say this, um, Ah, but I wish I remember the name of the host. It said, the first thing I would do as soon as I became president, I would drive it down to Roswell and have a look and look see. (laughs) (laughs) I absolutely love that. And I'm not going to segue into talking about Independence Day now because that was set partially in Roswell, wasn't it? I think, Pascal, we should head over and start talking about creator content. So let's do some creator shout-outs. And now we come to the part of the show where we give the creators in our personal communities a shout out for their fabulous content. So Pascal, why don't you go ahead and hit me with your shout out for this week? So I've got two, which is a number that we've agreed on. First one is Richard Tubb. Now Richard has had this series called Friday Favourites, which seems forever. And I think it's long overdue for us to talk about it. Every Friday, Richard actually chooses an app whether it's desktop-based or mobile-based, that can make life easier as a business owner, entrepreneur. And every week, it will surprise me with something that I didn't know existed. So <laughs> it's a wonderful resource. It's um, both a long-form bit of um, blog post where it goes into quite a bit of detail. It's also a video. It's also you know uh, examples of how you can use it practically. So Richard Tubb, Friday Favorites. Just Google that. You can find you know the, the blog. And literally, it's just a little nugget every week that I look forward to. It's almost like um, when you know you're going to get something in the post and you can't wait for the package to arrive. So that's the first one. The second one is from a lady called Hilary Dunn, who is behind a company called The Brand Activators. She released recently a free resource, 100 Stages to Speak On. Now, she's making the case that right now, of course, we won't be, as public speakers, engaged in many activities. But she argues the case that things will change, things will go back to some normality. In any case, there will be still virtual summits and the likes. And she's saying to all speakers out there, now is the time to do your research, to do your prep, to actually make some some approaches and understand who will be looking for people like you. So she has this resource where she's described a hundred venue stroke events that should be known to you as a public speaker. Now, two things, Roger. These will have taken a lot of time to compile. To begin with this is very very helpful and i love the positive message of yes you won't be able to you know partake in your favorite activity of engaging an audience and inspiring others but now is the time to do some good research yeah absolutely so here are my shout outs pascal first of all louise brogan now louise um comes from the north of ireland northern ireland and she is a linkedin expert and she's recently released and and it's, it's like effectively it's a linkedin profile crib sheet it's the steps that you need to take to make your linkedin profile 
stand out. Now, I know there are a lot of people out there who do this. You know, there are five-day LinkedIn challenges from this guru, and there are eight-day LinkedIn challenges from this guru over there. But but Louise just gives you this crib sheet, and, and it is super simple. And, and, and it doesn't go into that formulaic, you know, Roger Edwards and then helping X to do Y by doing Z headlines that you seem to see quite a lot of people use on LinkedIn. This is just super simple, five or six steps to go through to make your profile stand out and to fizz. And, uh, you know, we were saying earlier on that sometimes LinkedIn comes up, uh, across as a little bit stuffy because they overplay the professional word. Well, Louise allows you to inject a little bit of humanity into your profile. And that's why I like it so much. And my second shout out now, as you know, Pascal, a lot of my background over the years has been working in the financial services industry. Quite a lot of my clients are still in the financial services industry. And, and indeed, my other podcast, the Marketing and Finance Podcast, as its name would suggest, dips into the subject of finances quite often. But one of the podcasts that I've recently been listening to is by a chap called Chris Budd. He's technically an independent financial advisor, but his podcast is called the Financial Wellbeing Podcast. And why I like this so much is that Chris has almost redefined giving financial advice as giving financial coaching. And again, it's a bit of a pivot, not a divot, a bit of a pivot. And it's just an interesting take on what a lot of people perceive to be a dry subject. So yeah, the Financial Wellbeing Podcast is all about financial coaching. So if you're interested in your finances at all, give Chris Budd a listen. It's good stuff. It's good stuff. So those are our content shout outs from our uh, personal creators community. I think it's time to talk about film marketing. What do you think? Excellent. Let's do that. So welcome to the film marketing section. Now, Pascal, this week, if it's all right with you, I'd like to talk about Bond 25 or as it's going to be known, no time to die. Now, I have to tell you, I have to tell you, one of the consequences of lockdown was that me and the wife decided that we were going to watch all 24 of the existing Bond films back to back over a period of nights. In fact, I don't think we did it every single night. We probably had one Bond film and then a night off and then another Bond film. So it took us getting on towards two months to get through all 24 of the films. Not two months, a while, a while. I can't do the maths. It's too too early in the morning. So we started with Dr. No, which I think was released back in 1962, Correct. before I was born. And obviously the last one from a few years ago was Spectre. And, and oh, it's just fantastic to go through. I mean, there have been some great Bond films. There have been some clunkers. I, I would argue that pretty much every single one of them is entertaining in some way. But obviously some absolutely stand out. And, and I guess... I'm really excited for the launch of No Time to Die. I mean, there's been quite a, a gap between this one and Spectre, I think four, nearly five years. There's been all sorts of controversy about 
having changing the director and having to rewrite the script and will Daniel Craig do another one or won't he do another one? And if he doesn't do another one, who's going to be the new James Bond? And even though he has done another one, we're still having the speculation as to who the next James Bond will be. And will it be a female? For goodness sake, it. I think they can, they've, they've got away with Doctor Who because Doctor Who isn't human, but we'll, we'll have that conversation another day. But... Again, coronavirus has got in the way of the marketing of Bond 25. Now, most Bond films, if I remember rightly, tend to be launched in the autumn. So they usually come out sometime mid-November to tap into the Christmas market. Funnily, this particular Bond film, No Time to Die, was scheduled to launch in April of this year. And we just started to see the teaser campaigns. So, you know, 30-second preview, um, some great shots of the Aston Martin, a uh, shot of Daniel Craig abseiling down a wall somewhere, a little bit of action, a little bit of a teaser. You see the logo, the sort of the style of the film, a little bit of a, a hint as to who might be in it. And then, of course, COVID-19 lockdown comes along, and all of a sudden, unprecedented, of course, they delay the launch of No Time to Die back to November of this year, which ironically puts it back in its more traditional launch period. And the marketing has effectively been stopped just as the campaign was getting started. So I saw teaser trailers, I saw um, billboard um, adverts outside shops, and then there was the longer two-and-a-half-minute trailer, which was incredibly exciting. Um, but now, of course, everything's just gone dead. And I guess the question I'm thinking is that, you know, it needs must coronavirus, but is it possible to sort of stop a campaign mid uh, execution and then effectively resurrect it at a later date or will they actually have to rethink the entire thing and and just to layer on top of that I've also heard rumors that some of their audience previews weren't actually as um appro the approval ratings weren't as high as you were expecting and some people have been saying that they're actually reshooting some of it now I don't know whether that's even possible given the lockdown mm. but uh, what do you think well, for me, it was interesting that you should have chosen the Bond franchise, one of the longest-running franchise in the kind of Western-stroke English-speaking world, if that's the mm. expression. Uh, other continents have even longer franchise going. I'm thinking about the Asian market with Godzilla and, and a few other things. So to me, it's part of almost our culture. And back to your, your thing about the event, uh, every, um, every so often, is the Bond movie that almost tie you over the summer blockbusters and the Christmas movies. In between, you have the Bond movie, which is still for, I think, for families in general. Although some of the, the latter one with Daniel Craig have been very, very dark and I think more complex in terms of the character arc and development. But to your question about campaigns being stopped and starting again, whilst there is a context and the public will understand why it has happened, what they can't do, surely, come September, October, should we be allowed to go to the movies again with um, you know, all safety measures in place, they can't just reserve the same trailers and the same teasers. So from a um, work point of view, I think the marketing department, which I'd love to sometime be a fly on the wall, you know, we're, we're going to have to 
rethink their strategy because um, we so well we've seen that and if you want to have a spike of, of excitement you know to lead the audience to come to the movies you're gonna have to serve something else but the risk is of course then they start to give away too much of the storyline or they start to give away two things so i think they, they may have to do something very different maybe some um, audience participation things where that they've done in for other films where they give you know video clips and you can edit your own version of the trailer and then release it on social media uh, that could be one thing they're going to do they can maybe play a little harder on product placement one thing about the bond movies that is astonishing is how elegant the product placement is no other movie franchise or other movies on their own could get away with it without the cynicism being the reaction but here you see the laptops and the the clothes and the watches and the cars and i mean all the the, the gizmos that then are literally sold uh, as items around christmas and um, not that i could ever afford the james bond watch but you know, <laughs> and for me i'm just looking at it you know and be charmed thinking there's no other environment where you could essentially flog um, Adidas shoes because we were told, you know, because I was, that made the headline this year uh, or for this film, Bond is not wearing smart shoes, they're wearing Adidas, like, you know, the, the, the young guns out there. And so I'm thinking, are they going to lean more on that to let the product to do some of the marketing for them? Um, we don't know, but, you know, maybe actually people like those. Um, companies like Adidas and many others are going to say, do you know what? I think it's going to be cold. It's been six months, so we're going to pull out. So the risk as well for the marketing department is that their sponsors, I believe that's the term, and other kind of financiers are going to say, well, you know, it's been six months. We're not sure we're going to go back to the movies. We heard that the um, viewing, you know, the preview with the audience has not gone so well, so we'll pull back. The same way they're pulling back from Facebook and many other things. So I think at this moment in time, the marketing department is having big, big discussions. They're having a big challenge. But as an audience, I can't be reserved the same stuff that I've seen that led me to be excited. I mean, you're right, it was April, so back in February, March, you and I were already sharing each other's kind of, have you seen, have you seen this one? Um, everything from social to even the, the, the press. So I think there's a lesson in that for all of us, which is that when mar a campaign has to be stopped for reasons that are out of your control, you can't just restart as if nothing has happened. I think there is to be some reflection on that. But you've got to think about the audience as well. If your audience has already consumed that content, and six months later, you, you just, you know, in a great, great, it's a big challenge. And I can't wait to see what they're going to do about it. But I would be disappointed if they don't really surprise us because ultimately that's what I need as an audience. I think you're absolutely right. It has to be something big. Now, again, recently there was a bit of a revelation. I don't know whether it was leaked or whether it was just some good investigative journalism, but there was a bit of news about a plot point from No Time to Die, which to me was actually a fairly big spoiler, a fairly big reveal. So for the sake of everybody's sanity, I'm not actually going to tell you what that piece of news is, just in case you don't know. But it's something that, as far as I can remember, has never happened to James Bond in a film. And if it is if it is the truth, then it will be pretty big. But if they then base the marketing campaign around that particular spoiler, then by its very nature, they're going to blow part of the plot. And, and I don't really think they're going to want to do that. So I'm with you. I'd like to see 
what sort of interactive um, trailers we might see, what sort of product placement advancements we might see for this film. But I do know that I'm looking forward to it. I hope that we don't have to see it delayed again into 2021 because I really do want to get my fix of James Bond 25 <laughs> before this year is out. And you know, back to um, my comment earlier about the longest-running franchise, there is an enormous amount of uh, of goodwill from the audience around the world about the character that Ian Fleming invented as part of uh, you know his, his own kind of journey as a as a creator and as a creative person. And so I think they can bank on that, but they shouldn't take advantage of it. They shouldn't kind of rely on the audience's goodwill. Continue to do your job as storytellers and impress us and help us restart with you this um, you know, the lead-up to the movie release. Um, because otherwise, it, it could become, do you know, that lacklustre um, kind of... Um, sentiment with the last Star Wars movie. The last Star Wars movie should have been the biggest event in cinematic history. And it wasn't. It was just yet an, another sci-fi movie that people kind of went, but where, you know, I'm sure someone said, ah, wait for the DVD to come out. And, and I would hate for this to be what happened with Bond 25. Yeah, you're absolutely right. That Star Wars movie, it made me want to flip the switch on the gear stick, press the button and eject from the cinema. <laughs> well, talking of eject, um, time is against us, Roger, and we're yes. pretty much at the end of today's episode. Thank you so much, everybody, for listening to and watching Two Geeks in a Marketing Podcast. We'd be delighted if you would subscribe and leave us reviews in the usual places. Until next week... Please do go out there and make sure that your marketing is done right. I was Roger Edwards and he was Pascal Fintoni. Mm-hmm.